Why are you so full of heaviness, O my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? Put your trust in God, for I will yet give thanks to him. Psalm 43, verses 5 through 6. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Um, this keeps happening. There's something in the lessons that I realize requires a mini-sermon before the main sermon, so sorry or you're welcome, depending on how you take sermons. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, reading a gospel like that, um, there's always this sort of uh, lingering thing in the air in a traditional church because most of you call me Father Ben, and there it is in plain writing in the gospel, uh, don't call anybody Father. Uh, so let me just say a brief word about that in case that's niggling at your mind and then we'll get into the text I want to unpack this morning. Um, simply, Jesus is very clearly coming against um, teachers sort of assuming authority and respect and grandiosity uh, of themselves. Um, because to the letter, we still call our earthly fathers father. We still call our teachers teacher. We still use the word mister, which just means master, instructor. I mean, so the Jesus is very clearly teaching something um, in the scriptures themselves, many people are called father, right? Earthly fathers, Paul calls himself a father to the Corinthian church. John calls himself a father and calls, you know, so either the scripture itself is self-contradictory or what it means is not literally never let the word father cross your lips uh, in the case of addressing anybody other than God. Um, So I offer that only to say that absolutely, you know, the real teaching of this is it is the temptation for a teacher to start thinking, hey, respect me. <laughs> and that's what, Paul, that's what Jesus is, is coming very clearly against. Um, so I hope that you would rebuff me if I ever get on a high horse and start thinking like, oh, yes, I need respect. Um, that, that is not of God and is not the way the teachers of God should carry themselves as the Pharisees did. Um, so there is great, great and godly truth in this gospel. Um, I think it's different than just avoiding the word Father, of course, which you're free to do. People say, what do you want me to call you? I say, whatever you want. Like, it doesn't matter to me what you call me. Um, you can call me Ben, Father Ben, it doesn't matter. Um, so, okay, enough on the pre-sermon. <laughs> was that a problem for anybody? Or was that, a, no? Okay. Oh, hey, I saw a nod. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> that's a classic preacher trick as you make up that you saw a nod, but I did actually see a nod. <laughs> um, Okay, so back to Psalm 43. Uh, Why are you so full of heaviness, O my soul? Um, Such powerful, poignant words, right? I mean, they're written over 3,000 years ago, but if you're like me, me, don't you feel them kind of resonate and stir? Like that that feeling, I mean, that sort of universal human experience of a heavy soul? I mean, all of the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, every letter. Um, but this really grabs us by the collar. It's like, wow, what a piercing insight. As Hebrews says, the word of God pierces between um, bone and marrow, you know, cutting, it down, cutting us uh, down to a very quick. I think these are such words. Um, and what I want to sort of offer this morning is that um, the feeling of heaviness is sort of this universal thing, but, but not all heaviness of soul, not all, or not all heaviness uh, is the same. Not all the disquiet that we experience is a disquiet of the soul, which is what the psalmist is talking about, right? Why, is, why are you so disquieted within me, my soul? Uh, and so, uh, really, actually, if you look at the sort of Christian tradition, to use the language of the psalm, we could say there are three different things that could be disquiet within us. Um, the disquiet of the flesh, 
the disquiet of the mind, uh, and then the disquiet of the soul. And I want to say a little bit about, about each of these um, before kind of arriving where our psalmist is speaking at the end. I think it's useful to keep them distinct because each disquiet has its own causes and, and therefore its own kind of unique remedies. And if we're careful to distinguish, I think we will do our, our souls and our discipleship a favor. Um, especially because in the first two disquiets, disquiet of the flesh, disquiet of the mind, um, we can kind of do something in response to that in a way that disquietness of soul renders us sort of passive before God. And I'll be explaining more about that in just a minute. But let me look at these first two. The first then, um, the disquiet of the flesh. Um, it's the state of mind when the passions are stirred up. And I don't mean passions in the sense of just something you're eager about, but the ignoble passions, right? Um, our base desires, sometimes called our lusts. Um, whenever sort of our flesh is stood up. We actually have a lot of phrases for this in English because it's a pretty common experience, right? We say, I was all hot and bothered, or I'm all worked up. Like it's like something in us is just kind of raging, and it might be towards a different variety of sins, but oh, the two biggest culprits are, are anger and, and lust. And, and, and many things uh, can stir them up, right? It could be something as sort of physiological as hormones. It could be a situation you're in, or as you know, keeping with the sermon a few weeks ago, media we've taken in. Uh, it could be over-luxury. A lot of things can stir up the disquiet of the flesh. I think sort of the, the archetype, the, the, the dark icon, as it were. You know, we have real icons to portray visually for us uh, our incarnate Lord Jesus. We also, you know, a, a sort of dark icon of something that, of a disquiet of the flesh is, is King Herod, I think. You know, dining in his palace and over-luxurious in every way and, and beheading John the Baptist as a, as a result. Um, yeah, I think when our flesh is disquiet, our spiritual vision becomes hazy. Uh, it's as if um, the, the new man that Christ has born in us gets sort of temporarily sedated and the old man starts to kind of try and take the reins of life. Th- does this experience sound familiar? I, hope I'm, I think I'm describing something universal. I certainly know it in my own life. Um, but this is, this is the disquiet of the flesh. And the thing is, well, what can we do about that? And I just want to offer two things. Um, in the moment of being hot and bothered, in the moment of fleshly disquiet, the first and most important thing is to cry out to God for help. Right? Just to say, God, like, it's getting hazy. I'm th- it's feeling kind of crazy. Um, help me. Help me. I need, rescue me from this disquiet. Make my flesh be quiet. And, and very practically, um, to not do anything until the flesh has been made more quiet. What I mean is... Um, if you're thinking about saying some words in a conversation or thinking about starting some new activity, don't, because they will be the wrong words and the wrong activity if the if flesh is, is disquiet. You can almost guarantee it. Um, part of the illusion of when that sort of that foggy, fleshly disquiet arises is that it will last forever. Like, I just need some remedy. The truth is, is that it, with God's help, it will pass in a few minutes, right? Like, that need to say that angry word actually does go away with God's grace. If we... Um, if we, if we just don't act on it right away. This is sort of, you know, there's sort of a worldly wisdom paralleling this truth of the whole, like, count to ten thing, right? This, this self-knowledge um, that the passions are not forever. They don't need to be satisfied. They actually need to be refused. Um, so just as a practical advice, as from Christian to Christian, um, if you can recognize when your flesh is abuzz and pray and stay still for a moment, all number of evils in our lives and our relationships can be prevented. 
Um, and then just sort of outside of sort of the heat of the moment, one thing we can do as a favor, uh, actually it's an act of humility to ourselves. We talked about this actually a little bit in adult ed about them. There's this peninsula full of monks where women are not allowed and it seems sort of harsh and rude that they wouldn't, but it's actually a recognition that, ah, no, they're, they're men not, like, who are not practiced in resisting like, temptations towards lust because there's no women around. Um, and so it, they're being humble by saying, avoiding a circumstance where they know, because of their weakness, they won't do well. And, and we can kind of learn from that practice of if there's an arena in life where you know, that gets me all hot and bothered, avoid that arena and you'll do your soul some good. So avoid the arena in the first place. With these things, and there are of course other tools, but the Lord actually um, can quiet the fire of the flesh. It never goes away completely till our dying breath. Um, the great um, teacher uh, of the desert, St. Anthony of the desert, said uh, that we should expect to be tempted until our dying breath, <laughs> that it never fully goes away, um, but it can, the, f- the raging strength of the fire can go away with God's help. So that's the first one, disquiet of the flesh. Um, the second is the disquiet is a little bit more sneaky, the disquiet of the mind. Um, these days we would call that anxiety. And just to be really clear, I mean anxiety, the emotion that we all experience from time to time, not like big A clinical anxiety, which participates in little anxiety, but also is its own medical, physical thing and often needs the help of a therapist and, uh, and medicine. I myself have been blessed by anti-anxiety medicine for uh, in, in years past. Um, so just to be, to be clear, not all the, the common experience of anxiety we can equate to the clinical anxiety, which is its own thing. Okay, that was a footnote. Speaking of just the normal anxieties we experience, um, a disquiet mind is often, maybe not always, but it's often, if you kind of dig in, like, keep asking the question, like, what am I really worried about happening? Like, what? What's at stake here? Why am I so anxious about this? Often, it's because we are holding on to some created thing too tightly. And when I say created thing, I mean anything. Like anything that's not God is something God made, right? Um, It's created. So it could be uh, money. That's often a cause of anxiety. It could be your health. It could be comfort. It could be some relationship that you prize. It could be a memory that you don't want to let go of. It could be a dream that has never happened. I mean, it could be anything under the sun. If we hold on to it too tightly, and these are good things I'm talking about, right? Like, those are good things to have your daily needs met and to be comfortable. Um, but if we hold on to it too tightly, then that's the cause of anxiety. Because then when it's threatened, we have to, you know, there's this panic of like, oh, without this, I'm not going to be okay. Um, and so we, the work, I think, of sort of the Christian life is, it's not holding on to created things too tightly, um, but holding on to them with an open hand, receiving them as gifts from God. Uh, and, and one of the disciplines to encourage not holding them too tightly is to, we were talking again about prayer, prayerfully giving them to God. That when I'm enjoying something he's given, to not be like, ah, oh, thank you God, mine or mine. <laughs> but to take the thing and, and, oh God, thank you that I have a home that's dry and warm. Thank you that I have daughters you know, and, and a happy family. Thank you for these good things that I, I get to enjoy right now. And not being like, without this, I will not survive. You know, because when it gets threatened, uh, and even the fear of threat is part of what I think causes so much uh, inner tumult. It was St. Augustine who said famously and brilliantly, you know, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. As long as we're trying to find sort of stability in anything other than God himself, we'll be constantly battling the disquieted the mind. Um, 
And we're, um, as humans, we're sort of slippery to ourselves, right? We can do well with one thing in one arena. It's okay, I'm not going to hold on to this too tightly. I need to be over here starting to grab onto something else that's created. And I, this is why working with the disquiet of the mind is a lifelong task as a Christian. Because as you know, we're constantly creating idols, things that are not God, and relying on them for stability. So in order to, to seek a quiet mind, we get to ask God's help and to practice the task of, of thanking him for things but not, not holding on to them too tightly. And when we're feeling anxious, to kind of do some self-investigation you know, and to dig down to the thing that we need to give to God, uh, the way God asked Abraham to give Isaac, his most beloved thing, up to him. Um, yeah, that's a lifelong task. So disquiet flesh, yeah? Um, disquiet mind. And then the third disquiet I want to speak of is the disquiet the psalmist introduces, uh, the disquiet of the soul. The first two disquiets of the flesh and mind, um, they're directly related to like living in a fallen world, right? With sin and brokenness and you know broken hearts. I mean, they're related to the fall. But the third kind of disquiet um, is different. And I think most of the disquiet we feel, probably, you know, nine times out of ten, it's one of the first two, right? Something's gone us hot and bothered. We're clinging on to something too tightly. That's what is upsetting us in our daily world, daily life. And the third one's more rare, but still it's a part of the Christian life, and so I want to speak about it. Um, I think, <coughs> yeah, so if we, when you're feeling disquiet, I think it's good to investigate, what am I doing that's uh, collaborating with this? Am I holding on to something too tightly? Am I, uh, is my flesh sort of riled up by something I've experienced? To do that investigative work, first. But perhaps it might be this third disquiet, um, disquiet of the soul, which um, doesn't appear, I don't think it's something which sort of, there's something to work on necessarily. I think Jesus, when we look at his life, he doesn't seem to suffer from the first two. Right? He was tested in every way as we are, that's scripture, but it doesn't seem that he experienced kind of from the inside this sort of like, ah, oh, maybe I really want to sin, which we experience. You know, the, the fathers, the theologians of the past, they call that concupiscence. It's just, you might hear that word around, but they say Jesus didn't have that. There wasn't something inside of him inclined to sin. That was part of what made him perfect, even as he was tested every way as we are. So he doesn't suffer from disquiet of the flesh, the theologians say, from his, or the disquiet of the mind, but we do see disquiet of the soul, right? When he's in Gethsemane, when he's on the cross, um, He's not acting when he says, why have you forsaken me? And when the scripture, every gospel says, he cried out with a loud voice, right? There's some deep disquiet of the soul going on that Jesus experienced. Um, which shows us this is kind of a, a different kind of category of thing. There are many teachers of the past who've given different names to this disquiet of the soul. You've probably heard some of them, so I want to kind of give a list. You know, John of the Cross calls it a dark night. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola calls it a desolation. Uh, sometimes you'll hear it called dryness of soul or, um, or, uh, or, or aridity. But whatever it is, it, um, it's the absence of peace. It's a, you know, this heaviness is a good word. Probably you know this experience, this heaviness. It's not a tumult caused by passion or sin or idolatry. Um, it doesn't have some clear, you know, discernible, diagnosable problem and remedy. It's actually this mysterious thing that God permits, and what I actually want to offer to you this morning is that God actually gives us. It's actually from him, the disquiet of the soul, which I want to explain because um, 
in many popular presentations of Christianity, there's this idea that once you become a Christian, you'll never have disquiet of the soul again. Um, I just think of a bumper sticker that says, you've probably seen it, you know, no God, K-N-O-W, no peace, no God, no peace. And there's some truth in there, but I think we misunderstand it, you know, in that Jesus still had disquiet of soul, and he knew God better than anyone, God the Father, and the psalmist still has disquietness of soul. So I think we, we sort of overstate the case. Uh, in fact, e- even worse, I kind of have picked up that there's this kind of teaching going around that if you don't feel peace, you're not like doing it right as a Christian, which is really dangerous because then you're sort of like, oh, like, oh man, I don't feel peace. What, what am I doing wrong? Um, and if you've looked and it's not of the flesh and of the mind and there's still no peace, you're actually not doing anything wrong. It shouldn't be a cause for alarm. Um, one of the things that many of the great teachers of the church say is the reason... God gives us a disquiet soul from time to time is so that we would um, be led to seek our relationship with him, with God, over and above and independent of the sensation of that relationship or the experience of the presence of God. Um, if you, I know most of you have been a Christian for a long time, and so I, doubtless you've had some experiences where you can say, I felt the presence of God, which is an amazing thing to experience, right? I, I once heard it described as the way a blind man would feel the rays of the sun. I just love that image. I think that does sort of name, like, yeah, to experience the presence of God is an amazing thing. And if you've never experienced the presence of God, I encourage you to ask God for that experience, if you've never experienced it. To say, Lord, I want to know that you're real. And God does mercifully give this experience to many, many Christians, all Christians if maybe, um, so that we'd know in our bones, yeah, yeah, this is real. God is real. I didn't just hear about it from a pulpit. I know in my own experience that it's real. So God does give that experience. But the great, the, the hidden danger of the experience is that we might uh, latch onto the experience more than just the relationship with God. And I think this is what. I, th- I think I see it driving sort of Christians in our culture today a little bit mad, hunting down this experience. You know, I think this is what stimulates sort of the worship music becoming ever more intense um, and different sort of popularity of this teacher and this experience and this kind of retreat or these kind of things because we just want that experience again, um, which is, I think, to kind of miss the point. I think God very carefully gives us an experience so that we know he's real and then actually takes away the experience, gives us a disquietness of soul, um, so that we wouldn't long just for what we get out of it, but would actually be led to the next step to pursue God himself. Like just the relationship, even if I don't feel anything, even if I'm troubled, uh, that we'd still reach out for God. I think, you know, it's, we frame, if we frame it like, uh, you know, in America, we have most of our material goods provided for, uh, most of us. And we think of kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think we're sort of closer to the top and we're, we're, we kind of drag in our Christianity and we say, I want inner peace, dang it. <laughs> it's like, oh, I, and when you say it like that, it's like, oh yeah, of course that's not real Christianity. But right, we kind of slip into that, I think. I think sometimes God actually forgoes giving us peace so that we would choose him. He actually sends some disquiet as a sort of test that our faith would grow, right? That we would trust not just in what is unseen, but even what is unfelt. That in a difficult moment, when it feels like, as Jesus felt on the cross, it feels like the Father has left him, to know in faith that he has not left me. Like that's, I think, kind of the final 
big growth of faith in the Christian life. To, li- to know and to live into what is true even when it's not experienced. That when the soul is disquiet and there isn't a sense of peace, um, to trust him still. Um, I think that's why, why God sends it. And I think the way we can sort of seize it as a blessing, because the first thing, when I first, you know, if I come to Sunday, let's say, um, and we celebrate the marvelous Eucharist, and by the end, I'm just, my heart's completely unmoved. I'm still kind of in trouble by things. And, and my first thought is, oh man, like, what's going on? Like, I didn't get anything out of church today. Like, what? And it's this sort of panic. And then you realize, like, oh Lord, I know with your word you have promised that you will feed me through this holy meal. So even though I felt nothing, I trust in faith that you have fed me. And with it, and this is just an anecdote, but for any kind of experience of dryness, to say, God, I, I cling to your word over and against what I sensed or experienced or anything. Even though I don't feel calm, I feel like, or feel like he's present, I know that you are. And, and this marvelous thing happens when you practice this sort of accepting it and saying, God, uh, I accept that, you've, that you have sent this thing as from your hand, this dryness. I would like to experience your presence, but I trust that you are giving me experiences according to what's good for my soul. When you say a prayer like that, um, it's almost like this, your soul kind of opens up and there's like a deeper layer that you didn't realize was there where you then feel like a peace underneath disquiet or dryness or difficulty. And that's what's true. When we say Christians can always feel peace. It is true. But it's at this deeper level. Karen and I were talking about this the other day and we're trying to describe this to each other and we came up with the idea, of, we call it our sub-brain <laughs> that when you're upset and frustrated and it's not because of any fleshly thing because you want more of God or more of this thing or, but to kind of trust underneath like no, this is what he has for me right now and I accept it. And then there's a new layer of peace. And this is how you know, we, for, we throw around the phrase dark night of the soul fairly loosely. John of the Cross meant it was that he thought it was the greatest blessing God could give. That in the words of Isaiah, it's the treasure hidden in darkness. That he'd give a difficulty to refine us so that we would grow in our faith and our love of him. When we experience dryness, that's God inviting us into a deeper relationship, not a problem to be avoided. Um, so often the Psalms actually give us the right words to pray in spiritual experiences, and this is the same situation. Pray Psalm 43. And what does it end with? Verse 6. Speaking to his, the psalmist speaking to his own soul. So when you pray it, speak to your own soul. Put your trust in God. I will yet give thanks to him. And I think there's kind of a double meaning to that yet, right? Like, I'm still going to give thanks to him even though I'm struggling with heaviness. And also trusting that it will be, the dryness will be for a season. It may be long or short, depending, I don't know. But, but to say, I, I, I know that I will experience the joy of thanksgiving and the presence of God again. Uh, but for now, put my trust in God. Because, and then this great affirmation of faith at the end. He is the help of my countenance, right, face, and my God. And I just think, you know, the help of my countenance, I just, in that psalm, you can hear this picture of sort of a face bowed down, like what, like this heavy soul, he is the help of my countenance, like almost like a king lifting up a servant's face, and my God. And I think there's that image there in Psalm 43, to cling on to in the dry times. Um, so yeah, I offer you these the distinctions between disquiet, I encourage you to be more discerning sort of about what the source of a disquiet is. And if it is a disquiet of the soul, I encourage you to receive it from the Lord's hand and to pray 
through it rather than running away from it. Amen.